There are a few clinicians throughout our careers that have an absolutely exponential impact on the direction that we go on as occupational therapists. And I am super grateful that I've had the privilege of interviewing quite a few of them uh, on this podcast, the the Gail Whitefords, the Anita Hamiltons, the Charles Christiansons of this world. And I am stoked and honored to be able to add another person to that list uh, and also to be able to, to call him a friend. Today, I would like to introduce you to a man that needs no introduction, the wonderful and charismatic Dr. Michael Iwama. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. How did OT... I suppose it it took a while, Um, but uh, I, you know, uh, my family uh, immigrated to Canada in the early 1970s, and I attended high school um, in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, Canada, Um, And so um, for my first studies, when I went to college, and it's typical for, I think it's stereotypical for Asian families that have immigrated to uh, other places, that it's just imperative that everybody goes to college or university. Um, There's this unspoken expectation that somehow you're supposed to be be better than the the past generation. Uh, And so I went and studied... um, uh, I think what people these days call kinesiology or um, sports sciences, yep. exercise physiology. Um, so I went and, and studied for my first bachelor's degree uh, in uh, a program called human performance. So I got a bachelor of science in human performance. And um, by the time I graduated, I was working with elite athletes um, and, you know, for the I've had stints working with uh, the Canadian national men's and women's basketball teams, um, the men's and women's volleyball teams. Uh, I've even, you know, fitness tested uh, the professional hockey team in in, uh, that side of Canada called the Vancouver Canucks. And so, you know, um, varsity athletes, I, you know, worked as a trainer for uh, many of the varsity sports at the universities that, that I've been at. So that, that was where I was. But however, I, I started to realize that elite athletes are probably some of the most egocentric people on earth. <laughs> you yep. know, it's all about me, 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 and how can I get the best performance out of me, and how can I win, and, and that. And, um, and so I began to, I, I became jaded on my uh, uh, career outlook. And I guess I, I sought to really want to work instead of working with people at normal levels of performance, trying to reach super normal levels, I wanted to work with people at subnormal levels of of performance, trying to reach some semblance of normalcy. I wanted to work with ordinary people from all walks of life. 
And so the natural progression was to go into physical therapy or yeah, physiotherapy, yeah. as we call it in Canada and probably in, the, in Australia. Yeah, what it is here. Okay. And so I applied to go to physiotherapy school. I got accepted. And I was well on my way to um, becoming a physical physiotherapist until uh, in one of my clinical experiences, um, I was posted at a, a small hospital uh, on Vancouver Island, and um, it was called Gorge Road Hospital. And I remember as I was working with a client, counting repetitions of hip extensions, uh, bored out of my mind, wondering whether I was going to spend the rest of my life counting repetitions of people doing exercises. Um, of course, physiotherapy is far more than that. But, you know, that's what, you know, this um, student was, uh, was charged yeah. to do. But I noticed across the gymnasium floor, some uh, OTs working with a uh, person who had suffered a stroke. And... Um, what was remarkable was that as I watched these uh, these OTs at work, they were the same two people. They happened to be husband and wife. Okay. And they were not even Canadians. They were from the United States. They'd moved up from California, and they were working in this little hospital in Canada. And um, so I noticed that every day they were doing something different with the client. So while I was counting repetitions with the same client on a daily basis, here, you know, they were doing things with um, – uh, objects and cones and balls and you know from one day to the next they'd be doing something different and uh, I, I became really intrigued with that and I got to know I befriended uh, this couple and um, uh, I didn't know it at the time but well they were talking about occupational therapy like they were a couple of crusaders you know they were so excited and passionate about what they were doing and um and so I became really intrigued with, with the, the whole profession of occupational therapy at that point. Uh, we used to laugh at them from the physiotherapy side saying that, oh, they're just a bunch of basket weavers and, you know, they Heard help people <laughs> learn how to dress and, you know, all of these things that anybody can do. Um, and so I found out, and I didn't even know very much about OT at the time, but um, I found out that they had studied at a place called the University of Southern California. And um, they were, um, uh, their teachers were people like, you know, Mary Riley and uh, uh, Rude and uh, Gene Ayers and others. I mean, now I know what those names mean. <laughs> yeah. Back then they were just, well, so what? Yep. And then one day, um, I, I guess I was so enthralled by, by this relationship that I was developing with this couple that they invited me to move into their basement. Um, so I was living with them. And uh, eating dinner with them. And one day at dinner, I looked up and I saw this carving over the, the lintel of the doorway to the, to the kitchen. And I said, wow, that's a really nice carving. Uh, which one of you did that? And they said, oh, we didn't do that. That was done by one of our classmates in OT school uh, in, in California. And they said the person who carved that was a guy uh, named Gary Kielhoffner. <laughs> yeah. Of course it was. So, yeah, so talk about OT finding me. You know, I couldn't have asked for a more, uh, a better um, introduction to the profession. Yeah, that's amazing. And I was so um, enthralled by the by the end of that that uh, clinical experience that 
that I went back and I quit my plans to become a physiotherapist. And I did the most audacious thing. I moved from physiotherapy to occupational therapy. And all of my physiotherapy friends thought that it was crazy. You know, why was I leaving this sophisticated world of TNS and ultrasound and, you know, this and that um, to a world where I'd be weaving baskets and uh, <laughs> teaching people how to dress and put on their shirts and things like that. But, but I knew, Brock, at that time that just the ability to manipulate a button, you know, was the fine line between whether a person saw themselves as being able mm. or disabled. And, and that really uh, spoke to me. And, and so anyway, um, I uh, enrolled in the program in occupational therapy at the University of British Columbia. Um, and uh, the, uh, I, you know, graduated as a, with a bachelor's degree in occupational therapy. And then I was invited to come back and teach um, vocational rehabilitation because that's the field that I entered back into. Okay. Uh, that I started in, I should say. Yep. And I was doing some innovative things at the time in that area. And um, the then director of the rehabilitation medicine program at British Columbia was an American fellow whose name was Charles Christensen. And he gave me my first job teaching um, occupational therapy uh, at the uh, post-secondary level. And uh, so, you know, I've had really good mentorship, um, good role models. And, um, and so that's, so th that's my long winded story about how I became an OT. And I, it, it was the best decision that I've ever, ever made. And, um, uh, if I could go back and do things over again, I would do it exactly the same way. Or maybe I wish that I would have found occupational therapy sooner. So yeah. it's been, a, it's been a wonderful journey so far. That's, and, that's, I, that's, there's so many names in there that most people here would have probably heard in textbooks and that sort of stuff. We've had Charles, Charles has been on the podcast before, so people would, would hopefully have, have, have heard his story um but yeah that's that's an incredible like entry into the profession <laughs> oh yeah i mean it, yeah so when i so when i look back i realize okay and and you know i another thing that i kind of believe in, in terms of my own value set is that you know uh the more that you've been given uh the more the greater is the responsibility to do good with it Yep, and uh, and so um, that has certainly been the impetus to go forward and to try to squeeze as much as I can out of whatever abilities and opportunities and privileges have been given to me. Um, and in in that way, I think probably my work in the field of occupational therapy has been, uh, in in some people have called it altruistic, in that you know I've never wanted to profit from this. I've wanted to give back and constantly give back. And maybe that's been the secret to whatever successes I've experienced is that, you know, you just go forward with a sense of gratitude and um, do as much good as you can. And uh, the rest just sort of takes care of itself. So yeah, that's, that's awesome. how we got to where we are today. So you, did you work in, Voc rehab sort of the whole time until you went into academia or had you tried a few other areas or was that your, that was your passion? 
Well, that, that you know, it was, what happened was that small hospital where I was doing my clinical placements at um, knew that I had a background in exercise physiology. And they were developing a new uh, approach to vocational rehabilitation, sort of a kind of a, a, a separate entity from the hospital itself, of sort of a freestanding vocational rehabilitation service in work hardening, ergonomics consulting, uh, and um, and evaluations of people's um, work capacity to help uh, uh, lawyers make decisions about whether somebody was able to return back to their former jobs or not following an injury or an illness. Yep. And, and so when they started that program, a fresh grad like me, they invited me to come and be the coordinator okay. of that new program. And yeah, you know, a new grad with yeah. no experience. <laughs> but they, I guess they, they, they saw that I had a background in exercise physiology and that that, you know, I'd probably be a good person to be able to go in and, and do it. So I was flying by the seat of my pants. And before I knew it, um, I was being uh, asked to um, be a, an expert witness in the Supreme Court. And um, and then I started working privately as a consultant. And it was just really, really um, unbelievable times for a new grad who was like pumped full of testosterone and you know, I had my red Triumph TR6 sports car. I was living in a in a penthouse suite in a high-rise apartment building with sweeping views of Victoria Harbor. And I would take a helicopter from uh, Victoria to Vancouver to the to the Supreme Court in order to give testimony. And then later on, when Chuck Christensen invited me to come and teach vocational rehabilitation, um, you know, I, I was, yeah, I was traveling across the straits and going, yeah, I mean, it was just crazy, crazy times. So you're a rock star back then as well. Yeah, but, you know, there's a story. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say a rock star. But but what I'll say, though, is that um, I turned away from that. I threw it all away. Uh, and it's where I had an experience. Um, and I've shared this story with some people before. Uh, but it's one that really changed my whole life and changed my whole outlook toward occupational therapy and its future. And that is that I had a, a client uh, that I was doing a legal evaluation for. And uh, the lawyers then took that report and used it to basically get this person cut off from all of their um, disability benefit payments. And, uh, you know, it was a young father of uh, three small children. And um, this person suicided, um, and it was it it talk about rocking one's world. Yeah, it, it threw me right on uh, onto my back, and I that's when I did some soul searching, and I thought, what the heck am I doing? And uh, so going from the red sports car and the penthouse apartment and so on, I. Um, disappeared. I went. I went to Japan, and the excuse that I used at that time was um, that I was going to study how Japanese companies handled their employee uh, health programs and so on. So I went and studied how Nissan and Toyota and 
Hitachi and all of these companies, mm-hmm. you know, managed all of that and taught English on the side in Japan. Uh, and so that was my first experience of going back to Japan as an adult. And then later on, I would go back to help establish one of the first uh, bachelor's programs in occupational therapy there. So, um, so that was a, a, so when people ask me, what is my clinical specialty area? Yeah. It's, it's vocational rehabilitation, but embedded in there are some real lessons uh, that have really shaped uh, who I am today and where I am. The other thing that I'll say about that too, Brock, is that uh, other than that, that one incident that really, really uh, affected me, um, vocational rehabilitation and the work that I was doing was a perfect merger between physical medicine and, um, and social and environmental uh, aspects of, of well-being. Mm. So it was really truly biopsychosocial in nature. Uh, because when you're helping somebody to return back to work again, you're not just getting them physically able to meet the capacity that's required for their for the job that they're going to, but they also have to make the transition socially and emotionally and spiritually from being a chronic patient to seeing themselves as an able employee and worker again. Mm. And after having lost their... Um, regular routines of daily life of a well person of um, not engaging in the social um, activities uh, not engaging in work losing having uh, losing confidence in one's own abilities not even knowing what one's capabilities are anymore you know the ot that i was practicing at the time was seen to be innovative because i was i recognized those 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 challenges yeah and was working with them more on a physical and environmental level than i was physically like i found out that you can get a person physically well you can get 10 people with the same soft tissue back injury and you'll see 10 different levels of function and you'll see 10 different levels of recovery and return to work potential so that's when i thought well occupational therapy is just like it's incredible. It's just so um, broad in its scope and it, and incredibly useful. Uh, it's it's essential. You know, we spend our our lives um, uh, gaining competencies and abilities, um, but we don't quite know what to do when catastrophe interrupts that yeah, yeah. and tears it all apart. Right? We're not so good at putting all the pieces of the puzzle back together again for ourselves. And we need professionals who understand that whole landscape to come in and help us. And that's what occupational therapy is to me. Yeah, CIT is kind of when people aren't able to sort of see that big picture. Like we're able to stand back and see, you know, how their situation and how their experiences and how all of that sort of stuff fits into the big picture so that we can kind of help them stitch things back together and get back on on the onto that that track yeah yeah absolutely so um so yeah i mean talk about serendipity or karma um you know it was really important that i i went and studied sports sciences or exercise physiology first you know that i i happened to meet some uh, incredibly influential people um that uh, then i would go and practice in the field of vocational rehabilitation 
and had the kind of experiences that I had. Yeah. And that's really what clued me into the incredible potential of occupational therapy. And so that's always been my vision. Yeah. That that uh you know of OT and its possibilities. And I still believe that it's it is the greatest idea in now 21st century yeah. uh, health and medicine. So what where along that journey or what made you I guess make the the relatively unconventional leap into academia? <laughs> well, I mentioned that Chuck Christensen uh, you know, gave me my first job and so therefore an, an introduction to the academic life. And uh, that's where I discovered that I really enjoyed teaching. You know, um, and my students told me that I was really good at it. So it's something that I've I've always stayed close to is is education in, in occupational therapy. Um, uh, so I I then really started to think about um, about going down the path of becoming a, a teacher instead of a, a practitioner. Um, so. I, I went back to graduate school and did a master's degree in rehabilitation sciences. And, um, uh, and so I thought at that point that I would embark on a, a career of teaching and doing research. Now, the, the, the experience in, in graduate school was one in which I was um, really studying the, getting, gaining the rudiments of how, you, how to do quantitative research. And a couple of people in my, on, on my committee happened to be social scientists, psycho okay. psychologist and a sociologist. And they, my interactions with them turned me on to uh, the social and, uh, and, and intrigue with the social. So that would then um, lead me to then pursue the PhD in sociology uh, and then later on uh, uh, with uh, a medical anthropology. So talk about certain events and experiences that have really shaped where I've gone. That's how I, I developed. But the other thing that I want to say, and I think that this will probably lead into probably maybe a question that you might want to ask later in this session, uh, is about how the Kawa model got its, its origins. Mm. And how I got to the point of creating the Kawa model. Well, in, in the midst of all of this, I mentioned earlier that I had opportunities to go back to my native Japan, you know, first to, to escape vocational rehabilitation and to, um, you know, study how Japanese companies did occupational health. Um, but I, I went back and had the opportunity then to teach occupational therapy um, uh, in Japan. And uh, this whole experience of me being born and raised in Japan, acculturating into North American life, going back to my native Japan, reacculturating back to, to Japanese life, and going back and forth between these geographical and cultural locations. In my own life, I was experiencing uh, this phenomena of how ways of knowing and doing and being in one place don't necessarily mean the same thing mm. or are configured differently uh, in another cultural location. 
And so here I was teaching occupational therapy in Japan and trying to teach theory uh, in OT. That's what they had me teaching because that was the thing back then. Yep. You know, the what, Canadian what, model of around, around what year was this? Like in the... Uh, would have been in the mid-1990s. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it you know, a really was, big push uh, on sort of models and frameworks and stuff at the time. Yeah. OTs were, were leading the whole field of rehabilitation. Yep. Uh, they were well way ahead of the, 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 the physiotherapists in terms of developing theory and models and frameworks. Uh, to guide our processes, to guide our practice. So here I was teaching, trying to teach models that were made in North America and in Australia. Um, so it would be models, the models like the Moho English, and OPMA, CMOP, that sort of stuff, CMOP. Yep. Occupational Performance in Model Australia. Yep. Uh, and, and so, but my Japanese students and colleagues were not getting it. They couldn't understand it. And I clued into the fact that even in my own personal life, I was having trouble adjusting back into Japanese society. And I realized, oh, my goodness, you know, it's not that you guys are lacking the right kind of instruction or even in the level of intelligence that's required to understand models in OT. Because here I am, you know, I'm Japanese. I've got Japanese DNA, yep. 100%. You know, and 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 I can understand models, and, and so why can't my compatriots also? It's because the ideas could not be anchored. The ideas around occupation could not be anchored to anything tangible and practical in 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 how Japanese people constructed their activities of daily living uh, and experience of everyday life. In fact, the Japanese don't have a word in their lexicon, in their language, that actually captures the definition of occupation as we know it and celebrate it within our profession in, in English-speaking places, right? So, um, that's, so that's why we needed, I, I, it dawned on me that we needed new models, and we needed models that were culturally relevant, because I know, so, so last time you, when you were in Australia, like we hung out a bit, I came down to Brisbane and I did your workshop and we went out to dinner and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you explained it to me then, because um, obviously I'm not of Japanese heritage. I've never even been there. Uh, so I didn't have, I couldn't initially get my head around, I guess, what it's like to not, like, I guess, see the world differently to how I currently see it. And the way you explained it to me then was in a, a Western world we look at the person and we look at the environment and occupation is the bit that in between where the person enacts their influence over the environment whereas in a, a japanese culture and i believe at the time you you said uh it's similar in a australian indigenous culture as well they don't or they 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 don't conceptualize them as separate everything is sort of joined together everything influences everything so there's no space in between for occupation as a concept to actually fit. Is that right. am I am I still remembering that correctly? <laughs> yeah, like bang on, yeah. I would say. <laughs> I can but still remember I the would, diagram. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that I would say is that really what it is is that those of us in a rationally thinking Western world where the individual is celebrated mm. as being the center of the universe. 
that the self and the environment are two separate distinct entities. And so in that particular worldview, you need something to be able to connect the two. Mm. And it happens to be through our agency, through our action on the environment. And and unwittingly, really, it's a quest to control our environment. Mm. You know, the early stages of the model of human occupation, if you go back and do those readings, um, they were basically postulating that that um, your ability to control the environment was an indication of adaptation and that that was a an optimal place to be and that once you lost control of your environment and, and aspects of the environment were then controlling you that that was synonymous with disability okay um but when you go into a place where people have grown up and they've learned the world differently, you know, that we're, we're, we're in, interconnected with everybody and everything in the world. Yeah. And that it's, everything is in flux and always changing, but they're inseparable. Nothing happens isolated, that everything has its, its influences and its impact and reactions. And it's two way, two way influence as well, I think was the important thing as well. Like, you know, we yeah. impact the environment, change something in the environment, it impacts us, change us, it impacts the environment, everything sort of influences everything. So there are OTs around the world, like in places like in Japan, where when they hear about this, about the basic of occupational therapy theory, which is always the self is or the individual is, is a distinct entity that is separate, very, very close mm. next to the environment, but yet separate. And you need to have this some kind of an uh, an agent or vehicle of communication between the two, um, and that is what we in in Western occupational therapy call mm. occupation. Yeah. But the Japanese person and others would say, "Hold it! If the environment is in me, as I am in the environment, why do I need this thing that you call occupation?" You know, what's the instrumental value of that? Like, we don't know what you're talking about, yeah. Iwama-sensei. You know, they're like, what is that? Okay, if you say so. So, okay, we'll just memorize that definition of occupation. We don't really quite know how to explain it for ourselves. But yeah, yeah. because the leaders of OT uh, have said that this is what it is, we're going to um, respect that. And we're going to also repeat the same definition even though we can't quite make sense of it ourselves. So was the teaching in in Japan at that point in time, I'm assuming then that a lot of the, like it would have been viewed as a very Western profession and a lot of the theory or all of the theory up until that point was, you know, them learning, I guess, this Western way, this Western health profession. Um, Was there any sort of other like research or theory or anything going on over there? at that point in time before you started uh, developing karma no no um there 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 wasn't in fact the the very fact that the very notion that uh that theory or models could be built in japan was just like that wasn't on anybody's consciousness it was like well theories and models are made by more learned people people in those, those countries where occupational therapy has been around for a lot longer mm. 
they're the ones who are able to make the theory. And it's our job to learn those theories and learn them well and to execute those theories and, and models as closely to the original as possible. You know, Japanese people um, over time stereotypically have been lauded as copiers. You know, we'll take automobiles and cameras and how to grind lenses and, you know, we'll take all of these technologies from the very best places around the world and then rejig them, them <laughs> and even make them better. Yeah. So, the, but what, what's, what's hidden, um, what's hidden in, in um, all of the, uh, uh, um, in, in this is that the, the Japanese uh, social structure is built quite distinctively, and that is that everything is is seen through collectives, through through groups of people, and each of those bodies of people are always arranged in a hierarchy. Okay. So this whole notion of everybody being equal and democracy as a concept is a very difficult thing for Japanese people to get their heads around because they've learned the world in a different way that that everything is stratified in a hierarchy and so when when we then translate that over to a larger macro level it means that occupational therapy and especially american occupational therapy is at the top of the pyramid okay and so they're they're the authority and it's up to us to i guess respect that and to follow that lead yep. um, to the point where if we were to go and make a new model like the Kawa model made by people, clinicians and practitioners, I collaborated with clinicians and practitioners in Japan who are seen to be at the lower echelons of the occupational therapy pyramid, yep. it would be seen as offensive and, aff- and, and affront to the venerated uh, leaders of OT in America or wherever uh, to downgrade, to sort of indirectly downgrade the value and importance of their work by creating something ourselves to use for ourselves. Interesting. So, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, this is this is why, even though the Kawa model was made in Japan, I was going to say there must have been a lot of in, pushback. There was there yeah. was there was a ban on uh, on publications of the Kawa model. In, I mean that was uh, an unspoken uh, that that was whispered to me by uh, somebody who was on the, the editorial board. Yep. And um, and and so there were there was all kinds of opposition. Uh, there is no way that that Japanese OTs could possibly make anything that would come anywhere close to the perfection of models that were made in places like America and Canada. So um, I was so frustrated uh, in, in that alone that I decided, okay, well um, if that's the way that this is, I'm not going to be able to change it. I'm going to now take this model and take it outside of Japan and propagate it out into the world. And that's, when in 2002 at the WFOT meetings in Stockholm, uh, the Congress there, that's where I took my cadre 
of um, of uh, my 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 group of of OT practitioners um, who were already being browbeaten by their superiors for um, participating in the development of this sin yeah. of this model. Um, they they worked very hard and trained for this. We had uh, a great number of papers that were accepted for, for uh, oral presentation and posters. And we went to Stockholm, Sweden. And I'm so proud of these practitioners who practically memorized their presentations in English yeah. and, and presented the work across the world. And, uh, and I went to work at that time. Uh, I left Japan, left my professorial position there. And um, I went to work with Elizabeth Townsend uh, at Dalhousie University in the eastern part of Canada. Uh, and uh, that's where uh, I started writing about uh, uh, cross-cultural um, epistemology issues uh, as well as um, practice issues. And really, it comes all from my own experience of having acculturated mm into these different spheres of shared experience. Yeah. Right. That's really been the impetus to the development of the Kawa model. You know, why, why did we need a model? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And let me just relay one more story to you about this. That was that at Stockholm, one of the most amazing things happened. uh, And that was that I was scheduled to give a presentation on the Kawa model uh, at, you know, one of the, 20 rooms that at that time people were presenting on aspects of theory. And when I got there, I found out that there was a conflict and that somebody else had my spot. And um, so we were arguing as to whose, whose presentation should be allowed to be given. Well, it was given to the other person. And then they came, the the organizers of, of the, of the conference came back to me and they said, We've got uh, uh, an opening tomorrow in the keynote theater, and um, you can give your presentation there. How's that? And I said, well, okay. <laughs> if that's all that you can give me for, for <laughs> yeah. this disappointment. Well, you know what? I followed Gary Kielhoffner. Gary Kielhoffner gave a presentation, um, a keynote address. Yep. And then uh, there were a couple of other ones that came after, and I then gave mine. And I think that I was talking about uh, Eastern and Western, um, the, the the about occupational therapy's cultural relevance. Yep. And 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 so, I, um, if people are interested in, in what I talked about, it is captured in my publication in the American Journal of Occupational Therapy the September uh, 2003 issue, I believe, yeah. is where my article called Toward, it's, uh, the title is Toward uh, Culturally Relevant Epistemologies in Occupational Therapy. And so what I basically postulated in, in that um, uh, serendipitous uh, presentation uh, was the, the need for OT now to... Um, grow up and to now develop more models uh, 
that would that people in other places could relate to. Yeah, the one Western centric. Yeah, yeah, that you know, individual centric, uh, sort of bias toward um, um, middle class and affluent uh, uh, patterns of of living. Uh, and just all kinds of other norms that are embedded in our models. Yeah, yeah. Models are really cultural. They are actually cultural artifacts. They're made by human beings hmm. that are located in a particular sphere of experiences yep. and view of the world, right? So in that presentation, at the end, there was a question and answer period. And the first person who shot her hand up and asked the question was none other than Dr. Gail Whiteford. Uh, of of Australia, also you know? been a guest on the podcast. Yeah, right. You, you've got you've got all of the the heavy hitters there, uh, uh, Brock. Trying to collect the whole so, set. Yeah, yeah. And and she asked a poignant question, and and that was, are you you know uh, how many new mod- like are you thinking that we need one uh, another model, or do you think we need many more? And I said, as many models. Uh, um, that that will allow people in different walks of life to be able to re- relate to um, occupational therapy and what it has to offer. And uh, so I think that really uh, the 2002 WFOT uh, Congress mm. was also another turning point in the model. That's when the model went international. Yep. And um, I'm happy to say, to just sort of close the loop, that decades later, uh, um, at the World Federation, WFOT Congress in Yokohama, Japan, in 2014, I believe, uh, is when... Yeah, might have been that one. Oh, no, it was later than that, wasn't it? Well, it could have been, yeah, uh, 2014. I can't remember. 20, 20, Whenever it was. 2016. Yeah, I think, 2016. It was, I think it was about then, yeah. Yeah, that that the the Kawa model was translated and published in in Japanese, oh, and it awesome. was launched. It was launched at that that that, um, that WFOT meeting, uh, and so it's been back imported back into Japan, and now um, slowly but surely uh, it's gaining some traction there. But um, awesome. during but at the time in which the Kawa model was developed, there's just no way that that it had any kind of a chance of propagating in Japan. Yeah. No, that's really cool. So going back to, I guess, like that was sort of the, I guess the why it was necessary. But so you you got a group of practitioners uh, and yourself and I'm assuming probably a couple other people to sort of, I guess, collaborate and work on developing it. So how, what was that process? Like how did you go? Obviously most people have heard of, even if they don't, fully understand the different components uh, of the the model itself, of the metaphor. Um, how did you come up with those particular components? Like what was the, the process or the, how did you, how did it come well, about? <laughs> how did it come about? Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the first things that I did when, one of the first things that I was asked to do when I went to Japan to teach OT um, was that, uh, many people there recognized that I was of Japanese descent, that I um, practiced occupational therapy in North America, and uh, I was actually teaching um, at, at the you know at a university there. So 
they they were having difficulties understanding theory in OT. And like I said, they're when they look at the world, they see things in a hierarchy mm. and they wanted so desperately to, 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 to run alongside uh, the American OTs and the Canadian OTs. Um, uh, but one thing that was hampering their, their progression was their ability to understand and use occupational therapy theory. So they asked me to give a workshop. Uh, I believe, I think it was a two-day workshop. People from all over Japan came, OT teachers, especially and practitioners, to learn how to uh, understand and apply the model of human occupation. And I proceeded to uh, teach over two days what I would normally cover in two hours um, in, in a theory lecture yep. uh, in in North America, right? I thought it was a piece of cake. There and then, uh, I knew that I was in a lot of trouble just by the first morning. People were confused. They were dejected, discouraged. Here they thought, finally, we've got a Japanese guy who's yeah. able to teach OT to theory to us. Explain it to us, yeah. And we can't get it. And so afterwards, there were a number of people who expressed how saddened they were Many people were thinking about maybe even abandoning OT and going to work um, elsewhere, like maybe as, you know, work in a supermarket or whatever job that they could get. Yep. They were that discouraged. And so I, I thought, you know, I was going through my own transition of acculturating back into Japanese life as an adult. And I thought, no, you know, what we need is we need to develop a new model. And so I gathered these people that kind of met with me afterwards, and I said, I think what we need to do here is that we need to develop uh, an, a unique uh, model of occupational therapy that would be understandable by Japanese clients, especially mm. OT, Japanese students, and Japanese practitioners. So, I mean, later on, I, I'd find out that, that this model that we created was not just relevant to Japanese OT yeah, practice. Yeah, I was going to ask the, that. Yeah. The metaphor that is based on the one of a river depicting a person's life journey is a metaphor that a lot of people in many different places around the world can relate to uh, as a metaphor. Yep. So that, that's why it's been the, the utility of the Kaukawa model has been really quite impressive in terms of where it's gone around the world. And just for people but, that might not know, Kawa means river, doesn't it? It means river. In, That's right. Kawa Japanese. is the Japanese word for river. Yep. So what I did was that I gathered these people together and, you know, they were saying, we can't make models. That's something that really intelligent people on, on the other side of the ocean um, do. And I said, no, this is, you know, the, 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 um, uh, American, Canadian, and Australian OTs, but especially the 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 the, the leaders of OT in in America, uh, had the luxury of building their models and theory on their own um, historically and culturally located experiences. And what we're going to do, what I think that we should do, is that we should do the same. We should go right back to the basics and start to ask the, the basic questions. What is the definition of health? 
Mm. What is the definition of well-being? Uh, what is the definition of disability to us Japanese? And um, um, and we, so we need to start at the very basic places, not yeah. take models from other places and translate them. Try and make them into fit. your language, yeah. right? So um, I gathered a group of people to undergo a process of qualitative research. We met at another university in the evening. Um, and uh, we had OT teachers, we had OT students, we had OT practitioners from mental health practice, pediatrics, uh, adult physical rehabilitation, uh, to name just a few, um, as well as a couple of clients. Uh, and um, yeah, to gather together on a weekly basis. Uh, and I remember how inspiring these meetings were. We'd go from like seven in the evening until two or three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, you know, uh, and it's really something because in Japan, um, the universities, uh, big buildings, they usually shut off their their electricity, their lights and air conditioning at like eight in the evening. And when it's the summertime, that's when air conditioning cuts out. Yeah. Uh, and it gets hot in Japan, uh, you know, um, and so people would be sweating and <laughs> We would be doing our focus groups and so on way, way into the night under these conditions. And then in the winter time, you know, it was just the opposite. We'd have to bundle up and we'd be kind of half freezing and having our discussions. But it, it was just really quite inspiring. And so at the time, I had implored this group of people that if we're going to develop a model, uh, it's going to have to be kind of in a systems theory kind of format. Uh, like boxes connected by plus signs with an equal sign and then a box at the end. Yep. A plus B plus C equals D. And a um, very prescriptive way of doing it. Yeah, and it's yeah. a very rational, yeah, yeah. modernistic, North American, <laughs> Australian, UK way of of, of Looking building at the theory. Yeah, because yeah. theory is, is a rational uh, exercise. Yep. So these Japanese OTs, you know, we talked together and, and the, the, the first model that they put up was quite incredible. It was four boxes in a circle with arrows, not plus signs, but arrows connecting each box to every other box inside the circle. Four boxes inside of a circle. And, that, and when I asked, well, what, what, what is this? mean what is it explaining it means that these four elements of water the river walls and and, and floor and sides the sides of the, uh, the the river rocks and driftwood those four elements were in a uh, constant interplay and that if you change one box and make it bigger then it would um, affect the relative sizes of the other boxes there would be all of these adjustments being made kind of like an, an amoeba, mm -hmm. okay? Always in flux, always changing, always moving. And so um, uh, just to finish my explanation, water was the concept that we used for life uh, or life flow, well-being. Um, uh, the river walls and sides were symbolic of the um, physical and social environment 
that if there were problems in any of those areas, it would be seen in this metaphor as a thickening of the river walls, therefore constraining the channel of, of water, of flow of life. Water is life, right? Yep. The life flow. And then there would be rocks of different sizes and shapes that would appear. And uh, these were um, symbolic of problems, difficulties, and challenges. And then um, driftwood uh, are these um, um, elements that can have a positive, negative, or neutral effect on the flow of the river. These driftwood can get stuck between the hard structures in the river and create even a greater obstruction to flow. Or they can actually move rocks out of the way as they flow by or erode the side of the, the, the river walls a bit to increase greater flow. Um, so these are what I call personal factors, abilities yep. and uh, personality tendencies and whatever it is, um, training and schooling the person has, has received, whatever it is, those are personal factors. So here, you know, um, we had at the time this round circle with four boxes. And then finally, uh, in our discussions, uh, you know, we developed, we said, what are some easier ways to explain this? And one of the first images that came forward was one of a river and with a digger, a, a heavy equipment digger on okay. the banks of the river that was also in sort of digging out holes and things. And that was supposed to be what medical intervention was about, surgery and the use of prescription drugs, you know, to kind of uh, effect a, a, um, an effect where you would expand the, that, the channel. That could flow. be a very deep metaphor, that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just exactly. eroding the sides of my river. With... <laughs> right. So, so, you know, and artificially. Um, yeah. But however, so then it was like, no, let's get rid of the digger altogether. This is a much better... Um, much more un relatable, understandable way. And, and so that's how the river metaphor came to be, the Kawa model. So is, um, is using metaphor to, because this is something I've always wondered and I've never actually asked you about, so is using metaphor to explain a concept like that, is that something that's like common in Japanese culture or is that something that you just sort of amongst you decided like oh this might be a better way to like where did that idea of using because there's not so in ot most people can name a handful of ot models there's none that use metaphor to actually get their their message across other than this one really well and 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 there's a lot of people who don't understand the models um because um it's you know written in a in a cultural language yeah. the concepts are things that that we don't normally relate to on a daily basis. And, and, and they're very narrow in their application, believe it or not. You know, it's only OTs that can really fully understand the concept of occupation as we've learned it yeah. in, in our profession. But however, Brock, getting back to what you just uh, said, metaphor is something that we all mm. use and relate to. Like forget about just models, just, Think about our conversations. If you were to have a conversation with anybody and you recorded it and then transcribed it word for word, you'd be astonished at how dependent we are on metaphor. You know, 
I know. I definitely uh, <laughs> even when somebody swears and says, Oh shit, you know? Uh, and, and so when you think about that as a metaphor, you get a very clear idea. Oh, this is not good. Yeah. yeah. You know that, right. Or your patient says, Oh, the pain, it feels like a knife. The, or the pain is a knife. Yeah. Yeah. feels like I've been stabbed. That's a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, uh, it's an interesting thing, right? But it is a part of how we communicate to one another and relate to one another. Yeah. And so what I say about the Kawa model is that it is just a metaphor. It is just a metaphor. And, um, and it, it is not a, a universal prescriptive model. Really, it gives the occupational therapist using it the freedom to be able to use the metaphor in the most advantageous ways to communicate with your client and to help them move toward their potential. Because I, I, I remember uh, when you were in Australia last uh, and we, were, we went out to dinner with a whole group of OTs and there was a discussion. I can't remember who brought it up, um, but there was a discussion from one of the OTs around them essentially using the same concepts but using a different metaphor um in that from memory and i could be butchering this but from memory it was uh they used the metaphor of a football field uh and so like the opposition players were like equivalent to the the rocks in the car why the size of the width of the field was obviously like the banks um your team was the the driftwood and obviously you had to try to you know get through to score a try obviously i'm most Americans probably don't understand this, this sport <laughs> that I've just described, but it's an Australian, like yeah, an Australian version of football, which is yeah, kind of I guess like a touchdown. You probably could translate it to American football as well. Um, but that was just even that was like a thirty second conversation during that dinner, and that clicked in me like it really is just here's four concepts, and the river explains to me because I obviously understand what a river is and how it works and what's in it and that sort of thing. I get how all those four things interrelate and you can, oh, and sorry. And the reason that they were using that is because the, the population that they were working with, yes, that population understood river, but they were working with from memory, uh, like young and teenage, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, they relate really, really well to playing football. It's a really big part of, you know, that particular town or that, that region that they were in of their culture. So to get buy-in, I guess, from the, the kids, they had it set up so that they were doing this, the, the kawa, with a football field instead of a river. Um, not to say that the river wouldn't work, but just tailored it essentially to that particular region. And I remember that like it was it was yesterday because that was when it was clicked that this is a metaphor and you can use it however, you know, however yeah. you see fit, really. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and really, the, the, the goal of... of, of you know, I, I would want people who um, are using the Kawa model to have as an objective to understand and empathize as much as you can to the client's experience of everyday life. Hmm. It's like a narrative that is waiting to be discovered and appreciated and respected. And so each of our clients have got their own experience with their particular illness or injury or whatever the, the issue is um, 
And it really, instead of us coming in with these preconceived ideas about what their reality should be, that's what we do when we take models and universally apply that mm. model to everyone everywhere, like the same shoe fits everybody, when really what we're doing is that we're forcing our narrative mm. On the onto the client yep. and really missing what is essential to occupational therapy, I want to believe, and that is it's the client's experience of everyday life that should be at the center of the universe. Hmm. We should first be able to appreciate that first and then step back and then think about ways that uh, ways that occupational therapy can make a difference or has to offer, right? So that's why I say there is no correct way to use the Kawa model. We can suggest ways, you know, uh, in terms of how it was conceived in Japan and how it was first used, hmm. but really... The essence of client-centered occupational therapy is really about putting your client on top of everything, in the center of everything, right? And that, that means that we should not be unwittingly forcing the person's narrative to fit into our narrative, hmm. okay? Yeah, yeah. So if it's an AFL uh, football uh, uh field or a rugby game or the the autobahn in in germany uh which, which is a road without speed limits with on ramps and off ramps and accidents and slowdowns and traffic and fog and <laughs> right yeah right yeah i mean whatever it is you know if the client can relate to it in a meaningful way and effectively then that's the right metaphor or that's the right pathway so you may start off with using the river metaphor because you can relate to it hmm. but if you find out that your client can't relate to it as effectively as something else then my um change it <laughs> my recommendation is throw the kawa model away for now yeah go to something else that's much more safe to use yep and and um and then others will start off with the Kawa model, and then it will morph into something really quite different. And that is okay, because the, the essence of the Kawa model is that it's the client's explanation of what they've drawn or what they have put forward in the metaphor that is the most precious, most important Um they don't even have to follow the rules, you know, like, oh, gosh, I think you're wrong. Uh, water is supposed to mean this and rocks are supposed to mean this. I think this should be a driftwood instead of a rock. Yeah, no. Yeah. Just let it go. Yeah. And encourage them to, if they're drawing skull and crossbones or flowers or fish in their river, let it go. Because the, the, it's gonna, you're going to be treated to some insight into what this person's experience of everyday life is like when they begin to tell you what the fish are or, you know, what the snake is or what, what, what these things are, yeah. what, what do these flowers represent? So um, I just hope that the Kawa model draws OTs to be able to do occupational therapy better. Yeah. 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 More uh effectively and effective means as helpful as possible to your client who's trying to move toward their potential. Yeah, and that, that brings me to something I've 
definitely want to talk about. But I got a couple of questions from other people that I think will lead into that. Um, mm-hmm. And and I've I've actually heard this question a few times myself. Um, someone sent me a question asking whether you believe that the Kawa fits more as a conceptual practice model or as a paradigm, or are we getting into semantics when we start looking at things like that? Um, the answer to it is, and I think maybe it's an extension of what we've just been talking about, is that it can it's it's it can be all of those things, mm. and it has been. Mm. So there are some that will use the Kawa model as a conceptual model. They may use it as a mental framework to in, uh, ensure that they are keeping the client in the center of all of their their um, their thinking um, and in their planning. Um, so it can be used instrumentally like that, right? I mean, and from that viewpoint, it has all of the... Uh, qualities of a, a conceptual model. You know that it, it's effective and good when it can describe the phenomena uh, of interest uh, well, if it, if it can explain processes hmm. in, in a systematic way, if it can, if it's good enough to be, even predict um, outcomes and future outcomes. Uh, yeah, th- those, th- th- those are the benchmarks that we would use. But in terms of a paradigm, it, it is all. Uh, it is also that, in that the model really, when you compare it with contemporary models in occupational therapy, or contemporary theory, um, what is fundamentally different is whether you see the self, you construct the self as a separate and distinct entity from the environment, or whether you see the two as interconnected inseparably and in flux Mm. in a complex relationship. And so, um, so in terms of of paradigm, um, we can also reflect it back to the larger social paradigms that, that many of us in the industrial world are, are going through, you know, we've gone through the modernist period uh, where, you know, we had uh, universal, singular grand theories to explain all phenomena. It's what gave birth to the scientific method Mm. and how we can reduce complexities down to its elemental smaller bits to be able to explain that those realities. Now we're in the postmodern condition in which uh, understandings of truth and knowledge is, is much more, um, um, uh, uh, relative. Yep. Okay. It, it, like you ask a question and the person will answer. It depends. Yeah. Uh, and ever since the, we've had these advances in digital technology and especially social media, you know, we're, we're now recognizing that, Oh my goodness, my view of reality is not necessarily the same as your view of reality or understanding of the same phenomena even. Right. You can you can right now. I'm talking. I, I'm located on the east coast of, of of the United States, and I'm speaking to you on the um, on the east coast east of coast, Australia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in this real time conversation, I mean, we haven't gone this way, but we haven't. If we were in some kind of an argument, hmm. uh, 
we would know right away, oh my goodness, maybe, you know, in terms of what I've experienced in my life and how I've made sense of reality, you've, you've got a, your own unique and equally valid different way of experiencing and looking at things. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's, to me, that's what social media has really accelerated is the awareness that there are multiple realities. Yep. It's much more relational. It's not as cohesive and simple and square uh, as as the as as modernist thinking. I, f- I feel like too, just to preface that as well. Like I I hundred percent agree with you. I it's definitely made it more aware. I still think there's a ways to go before the majority of the world is more accepting that there's other uh, yeah, other they, spheres they of are. influence. But there's definitely more aware that okay, there's people all over the world with the same and different opinions to myself and yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm getting it like with both barrels here in the United States. I mean, look at what has been happening politically here over the last couple of months. Yeah. You know, like what is QAnon and, uh, and all of these conspiracy theories, you know, I mean, everything from, you know, the the shootings at Sandy hook of those children as being a false flag to, you know, and other, I mean, people actually believe this stuff, right? So it is, um, that's what the underscores for me, the reality that no, we have all, we all each developed our own unique views of reality and we decide what is believable and what isn't. And, and we have our ways of being able to validate those things for ourselves. To some people, it's, it's whatever people talk about and reinforce through conversation to others. It's about using some kind of a scientific measure to be able to determine that. Right. So uh, now I, I think that I've gone way off on a tangent. Here. No, no, that's I right. can't even remember what well, I was I, talking I about. Think, oh, paradigm. I think, I think to build on that too, and this, this could be a very loaded question because I feel like I already know what the answer is going to be, but <laughs> where do you, so in my experience in using the car, well, like we've talked about how uh, a lot of our westernized developed models weren't very well understood, if understood at all. Uh, in the Japanese culture, but in my experience, going the other way, there's a Western people from a Western world that I've worked with or a Western culture that I've worked with understand the kawa, no worries at all. It's really easy. I wonder whether, firstly, that's your experience, but where you feel, or if you feel even, the kawa fits within, say, occupational science, who is, I guess promoted as the underpinnings of our whole profession from a western world anyway um where do you feel they do they oppose each other like or do they fit somehow together like where do you see that sort of relationship well um yeah it depends on i've got to be really careful about how i answer this question (laughs) (laughs) that's what i thought (laughs) Yeah, and it's good that you're asking this because I think that this is something that that we as a profession should also reflect on. Mm. Um, If we want uh, our profession to be truly relevant and helpful um, to people in different locations, different places, different experience um, sets around the world, uh, wherever you are, I think that really we we need to reflect upon... um, our own understandings of our own concepts and um, and really come to terms with either with, with 
we've got to grap- grapple with the very same issues of whether the concepts that we put forward are truly relevant and applicable to everyone everywhere, given the growing sense or awareness of diversity that we're gaining. I think that that occupational scientists, um, especially in the early days, had, and they still have the very best intentions at heart. They really, really want to give something of great value to the world. Revolutionary, you know, of being able to really um, highlight the benefits of this thing that we call occupation. Um, But I will say, and this will be maybe um, metaphorically quite crude and um, maybe a little bit over the top, but, you know, um, the colonization of many of the southern uh, countries of the world uh, was propagated and justified by good intentions. Mm -hmm. You know, when northern countries would go into the African continent and basically say, we're going to save these people from themselves. We're going to teach them how to behave, um, how to act and how to speak our language um, and so on and so forth. So really, you know, I mean, if we were to just think openly, uh, we'd realize that, that we also need to be careful within our profession Mm. in terms Mm. of what we not just wittingly, but unwittingly, uh, communicate to the other the um, the kinds of assumptions that we're making about the other and about um, really what we think their reality should be uh, without very much consideration for how they might see it from their viewpoint. So I have, you know, I've been, I've supported uh, occupational science from a distance, but I've always rejected or resisted Um, the label of being called an occupational scientist. And that is because I really do feel that the the core concept, uh, occupation, is culturally bound. And that it's going to resonate with a lot of people who um, uh, abide in uh, shared experiences as with the authors of these concepts. And... um, um, however, it does disadvantage people who can't relate to the concept because mm. they can't anchor it to the same social conditions of individual centrality, of human agency, uh, and so on and so forth. So I, I just think that, you know, with best intentions, I mean, you know, occupational science was launched as, as, a, as a new discipline mm. and one that, you know, was not limited to occupational therapy. Um, uh, but, you know, was certainly a, a growing body of knowledge that OTs could refer to, to support their, their uh, fledgling growth. Um, you know, so it, 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 it started off um, with, yeah, with really, really good, good intentions. Yeah. I think that really what it's suffering from, and this is evidenced in the fact that there hasn't been the kind of buy-in from other disciplines, from other uh, act from academics and other fields yeah. to come over to this, and um, and I think that that you know there it's it's indicative of how just like our contemporary models in occupational therapy were developed with a modernist mindset, you know where you want to create a grand theory 
that is going to explain this phenomena for everyone everywhere, regardless of their differences in experiences of the world and of reality. It, it is, I believe that occupational science, at least in its original form, is a vestige of um, worldviews that, that uh, were very central to the modernist period. And now that we are into the postmodern, um, some of these notions and assumptions that are based on a rational view of the world, in which grand theories are adequate to explain a phenomena for everyone everywhere, um, it, 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 it's not going to hold. And uh, so occupational scientists have to, in my opinion, they've got to do some... Um, major rejigging mm. and that is eating humble pie stepping back and saying okay let's start from the very beginning again and let's ask the essential questions is instead of making statements like all people are occupational beings or occupation is essential for health and well-being um, or occupation is doing being belonging doing being becoming doing being Becoming belonging. Becoming belonging. Yep. Okay. Instead of making those statements with a great deal of confidence, let's go back like all of these other, um, many other disciplines have done, and let's ask the essential questions. Let's formulate, reformulate it into a question. Is occupation um, universally uh, required for health and wealth? Is occupation doing, being, becoming, and belonging. Are we all occupational beings? And, and if, if that would have been in the uh, equation from the very beginning, I think that we would have seen occupational science grow into a much broader, uh, much more eclectic um, uh, uh, discipline mm. of, of thinking. And I think that probably now um, occupational scientists, especially those that are more trained in the social sciences, are trying to make those exceptions. They're trying to backpedal and they're trying to get into um, uh, everything from um, uh, uh, disability theory to uh, the, the field of, of science where we, we, uh, we look at text and we, we uh, analyze text and, okay. and uh, draw understandings from it it's called critical it starts with a d <laughs> theory a- anyway um uh it's got a long hill uh, a- ahead of it um i uh so the long and short of it is that uh i'm not opposed to occupational science but i do um most certainly have some cautionary issues of, about it and that's why i haven't been participating in um, uh, occupational science because uh, I don't want to participate in um, any kind of um, activity that would maybe be seen to be actually excluding yeah, people. Yep. yep. Okay. And oh, that's, a, that's a strong and hard, possibly unfair thing to say, but really when you look at the effect of it, if you're taking a set of ideas and you're just assuming that this is the way that everybody around the world sees reality. Um, and, and, you know, with the best intentions, you're trying to get that vehicle moving in that direction. Um, it, there are going to be people who can't relate to it. 
who don't see it as part of their own understandings of reality uh, and therefore don't value it as, as, as essentially and fundamentally as many of us might, um, it actually is excluding. It's actually rewarding yeah. the people who abide in that view of reality. And that, that, that fits with something I've thought for a very long time in that OTs as a whole, and again, this is a very generalized statement, uh, as a profession, we don't, I don't feel we have enough critical thinking. Uh, we don't question enough things, even right down to the, the little things of like, why am I doing this assessment with this person? Like, what is what benefit is it going to be to them? Uh, I hear so many OTs that, and I, I used to be the same when I used to get referrals. So I'd get a referral for a baseline assessment. I'm like, okay, baseline for what? Are you expecting them to come back? How about we just do a really good job now and then they won't have to come back. Uh, so yeah, I just, on every level, I feel like OT as a profession, OTs in general could do with, and me, I'm including myself in this, could do with more, critical thinking or at least even more space to to be critical and think about some of the concepts that we work under that we use some of the assessments some of the some of the places that we even see the profession actually situated i i i mean i'm fairly opinionated as you know um i i feel probably aren't the best spot for our profession and might be better suited to other professions whereas there's other places where you know, we could put more OTs because we're able to have a bigger influence in that that particular area. But I, I do feel I'm always wary of people that talk in absolutes because I'm like, if you're talking in absolutes or absolute truths or, you know, this is the way and I sound like the, what is it, that Star Wars thing, that Mandalorian, this is the way. Um, <laughs> I feel like then you're already negating some other options. Yes any 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 other options one more thing that i wanted to cover before you go because i know i've taken up a lot of your time um is uh i've had someone talk uh, ask about the application of the kawa to individuals but also to community level um because i know like I, i can speak from my experience as a as a mental health clinician that's used the kawa pretty much since i learned about it uh right through my my clinical career um i've used it uh, similar to what you were speaking to before when we were talking about whether it was a a paradigm or a model etc um i've used the kawa as a number of different i've used it as an initial assessment i've used it as an outcome measure i've used it as pretty much any sort of point along that therapy process i i've used the car i've used the car in a job interview i got a job interview once doing a presentation using the car um which is one of the more unique places that i've heard it used but uh, like it 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 fit it worked and i got the job so obviously it works um so from an individual level i feel like it's relatively easy for most people to get their head around how to to use it as an individual level especially if you're working one-on-one like the, the other thing is, and you only have to look at like a Kawa hashtag on Twitter or something to find the myriad of ways that people actually apply it. Like I've done things real basic from drawing it on a piece of paper or drawing it on my iPad to digging a hole in a park and actually filling it with rocks and sticks and that kind of thing. And I've heard um, like there was someone on Twitter yesterday talking about um, outdoor 
Kawa, where essentially they, again, do it outdoor. They'll go and find a little creek or a river or um, I saw photos someone posted of them doing it with a group of people on the beach. Uh, like there's a myriad of ways to actually, I guess, physically use the model. Um, I know a friend of ours, Jen Gash, who does a lot of art in the UK, um, paints a lot of uh, Kawa-inspired images and that kind of thing. There's, there's a myriad of ways that people can use it. Um, one thing I haven't done a lot of, and I've heard of examples, I think mostly from you, um, was how it's used at a, a community level or a larger group level. Can you speak to yeah. that at all? Sure. In in the same way that, um, um, you know, earlier we talked about how we we all um, have different ways of understanding uh, the reality around us and our, our relation to it in terms of the self as being a separate entity from uh, the surrounding uh, environment um, to others who see that um, as being a much more blended um, uh, view uh, or entity. If we were to, to take how we take, how we use the Kawa model on our own selves and we have the ability to then imagine groups of people as being described as a body. You know, when we talk about a core of people, uh, we're, we're talking about a group of people that are basically unified in purpose or are together in a particular place. Another word for a well-knit community. Mm. The examples that I've seen used of the Kawa model have been with organizations as well as with communities where uh, let's take a community, let's take a, a setting in which um, this example maybe uh, comes from Thailand, for example, where uh, a, a, an elderly uh, support group that meets together on a regular basis uh, in a particular part of a, of a city um, uh, are led through an exercise in which they're um, uh, they're reflecting upon their community, uh, the place where they all live and interact with one another, and they then have a conversation about uh, how their community is going in general, whether it's a you know healthy a place that's really happy and 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 thriving uh, and. Uh, and still inspires hope for a lot of the residents in the community. Um, there will be conversations around uh, what the, the social and physical environment of that uh, community is, and whether there are certain problems and issues that are thickening the, the river walls at that point. Uh, and what are the kinds of challenges and problems and difficulties that the community is facing? Some people might say, well, there are financial issues that, that are there. Um, there's uh, conflicts between people who are from this particular tribe and those who aren't, uh, and so on and so forth. And then there is an inventory taken of all of the assets and all of the strengths and, 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 you know, and, and some of the other factors that um, cannot be captured by uh, the other elements of their river. And to be able to then be taken through a process where everybody's able to reflect and agree upon um, 
this description of their present state is. And then to put their heads together or to be led through an organized procedure in which then they're, they begin to identify which kinds of problems they want to be able to tackle, mm. what rocks they want to either remove or decrease in size, what can be done about their social and physical environment to allow more health and happiness to flow. Um, so you get an idea of how these same ideas can be extrapolated from the individual mm. introspective way of using the Kawa model to one that's much more organization um, applicable. So and in that instance, would you be talking to sort of individuals within the organization or would you be doing like group discussion type stuff? I guess it depends on the size of the organization, obviously, but yeah. you could do both, you know, I assume. It, yeah, if the end result, if the end goal is to be able to understand their narrative, mm. then you as the professional will be able to make the best decisions as to whether you want to take select people from that group or the leaders or whether you want to hold a, a much larger uh, group meeting where everybody has the freedom to talk and converse and so on, right? Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, it's not... Uh, it, this is not a modernist model yeah, yeah. Uh, that says you have to use it this way and in this order, and the concepts can only mean this. I think that's that's one of the things that I was always drawn to uh, when I was using it clinically was, it, it's, and I, I'm sure I've heard you or someone else describe it as this, is that you're essentially building a model of the person uh, rather than trying to make the person fit one of our existing models like we've spoken about earlier, but um, to the point where I, I recall a, a few years ago, there used to be a, an app on iOS on Apple um, for the car wire. And I remember there being, I remember getting the app and checking it out and going, yep, okay, all the usual stuff is there. And But there was these like extra things in there. There was a fish and there was a, I think it was called a sparkle. It looked like a little star. Uh, and I was like, I have no idea what that is because it's not in the textbook. It's not in the original um, and I was using it with a client. It was before I'd even, I had a chance to ask you like, what are these extra things? And I was using it with a client, uh, and he just decided that the fish were going to be supportive relationships. Um, and I was like, okay, sure. Like I know. And when I asked you, it was pretty much the answer I was expecting in that it can be whatever they want it to be. Um, so we would use it to, like, we would do one probably every couple of weeks. Uh, and so I saw him fairly regularly. Uh, and it was, he was using that to sort of track, uh, his supportive relationships, how close he felt with, you know, at the time, I think it was his mother and his sister, or something like that. And, you know, I had a falling out with mum this week. So her fish is not there this week kind of thing. Um, oh, and it was it, that, that's how it was used. And I've had other people that, like like you sort of alluded to yesterday uh, yesterday earlier uh that some people might put things as a rock that you might have thought oh wait up that sounds like it should more more be a, a piece of driftwood kind of thing and i think that's the biggest thing that i i i like and i try and get across to my students as well about kawar is it's no matter what you think about it no matter how you use it it's a narrative exploration tool. So no matter what comes up, no matter what the 
final image, the final whatever it is that you're doing, like if you're digging a hole and putting rocks and stuff in, no matter what it looks like at the end, like that's not the end of the story. That's the start. That's the beginning of where your your work with that person starts, whether it's the start of the session or the start of your therapeutic relationship. Once you've done Akawa, uh, using it as a, a noun, I guess, um, mm-hmm. that's, that's the beginning because now – you get the privilege, you get the opportunity to go through and really get a better understanding of how the, the, the person that you're working with sees their individual, their circumstances that they've laid out within this model that they've constructed about them. You get the privilege of being able to learn how those interrelate for them. doesn't matter what the model actually says or how it's constructed or you know, the theories, the bill, that sort of stuff sort of goes to the side because you get to find out exactly how that person operates according to them. And that was always the thing that I absolutely loved the most about it was it was a tool that allowed or I guess enhanced what I always felt already as a, a privilege to be able to, you know, be that close or be allowed to explore sometimes quite delicate things, especially working in mental health with a, with an individual uh, on a, a level that, yes, the level that you're exploring at was generally a really deep level, but it seemingly using this model made it, I don't know, like almost unintrusive to, to touch on sometimes some really, really quite delicate topics. Uh, it just made it much more accessible uh, to to the people that I've I've ever used it with, uh, it, it always works exceptionally well for 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 the people that I chose to use it with. Well, I've just been kind of spending all this time nodding my head, yeah, <laughs> and and just sort of marveling at the fact that yeah, you know, Brock, you really know and get the Kawa model, um, and I think that yeah, it, what's just really essential here is that that really it's the client's narrative. It's their story. It's their experiences that we want to gain access to. Um, and, uh, and we have to fight the tendency that we have in our own professional training um, uh, in the hierarchical field of medicine. Uh, to, uh, we have to resist the, 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 the um, tendency to want to project what we think are what we think the answer should be uh, to the other, and that's what we unwittingly do when we take concepts yeah. uh, and of a model or theory, and we we you know project that or even use it as a lens to interpret what the client is telling us. Because you know when we do this kind of thing, and we were to take what we've then translated from their story through the language of our models. And we were to show what we've written or what we've taken back to the individual, they won't be able to recognize it as their own story, mm. you know, as the, as a reflection, an accurate re- reflection of what they're going through. They just have to throw up their hands and say, okay, well, you're the professional, mm. so you must know. But um, so really, you know, when we talk about enabling occupation, being client-centered, uh, this is exactly it. Um, maybe what I want to do is maybe just kind of, you know, uh, uh, with this to to um, leave you with an anecdote that I always 
uh, try to tag on in any kind of presentation that I give on the Kalo model. Yeah, sure. If there's any one, if there's any one thing that I want people who encounter the Kalo model to come away with, you know, the one sort of the most important lesson were to take away from learning about the Kalo model, it's this: it's that the client becomes a theorist who builds a model that explains or describes really well what their experience of everyday life is like. You as the therapist now becomes the student of this theorist model, asking questions like, what is this rock here? Oh, I thought that maybe your rock would have been this other thing. Or why are why is this rock over here so big and this one so small? Um, asking questions to try to learn as ac- as closely and accurately as possible what the the components of this theory is from the theorist who is the client, and then together you put your heads together to then uh, think about what occupational therapy processes might be um, helpful. Mm in helping this person's river to flow better. So in other words, to be able to to jointly together set goals and make an agreement about the kinds of things about uh, that you want to be able to work on. Right. So that, that, you know, that, that's it. And to understand that the Kawa model metaphor is simply a vehicle of communication that mutually you both can relate to. Mm. Um, it so g- that gives that, you an opportunity to speak the same language rather than us speaking yeah, and, medicine and them speaking then whatever they understand. It, and for the other to really gain a really good basic grasp of what occupational therapy mm-hmm. is, you know, um, because the language is now um, being reduced to what both people can understand instead of coming in with the sophisticated language of our culture in occupational therapy, personal causation, you know, volition, habituation, performance, uh, you know, to, to people who can relate to those concepts, that's perfect. That's fine. You know, but uh, a lot of people can't and Mm -hmm. don't realize, and the therapist doesn't realize that they're actually imposing their, their, uh, they're 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 colonizing uh, the other to one's own reference of what is real and worth doing and worth knowing. Couldn't have summed that up better myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Um, um, I, I and just as you've talked about how the you know the Kawa model uh, is just the start. Yeah. Uh, I hope that for your listeners. Uh, that they'll also see this conversation is as just the start uh, of uh, uh, on a journey of um, looking at ways in which they can really um, give power to their practice and to bring their practices more in line with the needs of their clients, which in our world should be almighty. That's that's why we're all here, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. So is there, is there any resources or anywhere people can go to find more information about Carl? Obviously, there's a, a textbook, and I'll throw the link for that uh, in, the, in the show notes. But there's a website as well, I believe, if that's still running. Well, 
Yeah, it's still running. I think that it hasn't been updated in quite a while. Um, the, the main thing about the Kawa model is that I've always wanted it to be a grassroots kind of um, thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, and, and all of your listeners should also know that we have pledged from the very beginning not to profit from the Kawa model. So I haven't made a penny on the Kawa model. Um, and uh, so um, uh, the... Um, I just lost my train of thought. I was gonna, you you were the website, yeah, the website, right? And and so um, there are some people that you know had committed to to it, but they've gone, they've started PhD programs, and, yep. and um, Life you know have back to it. But we'll we'll sort of circle back to it. But the thing that I want to say about this is that you know I'm forever learning from uh, my daughter, who's uh, 18 years old and she's in first year in college, uh, and she. Um, you know, when, when I talk about news and politics with her, I'm just astonished at how so much more she is informed than I am. And, and she's where she getting a lot of her, she watches or she accesses a, an app called TikTok. Okay. Yeah. It's what I haven't, so haven't been able to bring knows. myself to get onto that yet. Well, she knows what's <laughs> going on. Yeah. And, all in these half minute 20 second blips of you know of information um but so it's just really um reminded me of just how much of a dinosaur i am uh <laughs> when it, you know i just thought well i'm on to social media because i'm on facebook and here's my daughter saying well facebook is kind of like for old people <laughs> which i am <laughs> then i am too and, yeah <laughs> So uh, what I would say to your, to, 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 to again, your audience um, is just that if they want more information about the Kawa model, they probably have a better idea of yeah. where to get the information. I'm pretty sure there's going, a ton of stuff. that If you just Google it, it'll bring up all kinds of things. Right. YouTube and Facebook and, you know, uh, yeah, Instagram. I mean, whatever it is, I think that there's just the growing body of information mm. that's out there. Uh, and, um, and, you know, it kind of fulfills part of the mission of the Kawa model is that we had recognized at the very beginning that the Kawa model was going to be different because not only conceptually different mm. and paradigmically, but, um, but also different in terms of how, how it's, yeah. Yeah. And how it's, how it's going to be propagated, yep. how it's going to be distributed. We wanted it for practitioners and students, especially not just for the academics sitting in the ivory tower, uh, like myself. And in order to do that, well, we hope that it will follow these so-called unconventional and non-academic ways of getting out. And that is social media uh, and all kinds of other current venues or vehicles. Like this podcast. <laughs> like this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, what like this podcast has been a great, great privilege and honor to be one of your your guests, um, Brock. No, Thank it's you. like I like I said before we started. I'm like you've been on my list. I think since before I even actually started. So I'm glad we could uh, finally the stars aligned and we could finally make it happen. Because uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one. It's been really good to catch up, and two, it's it's been thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, remin or not reminiscing, but I guess re-going over all of these conversations that we've had in the past, and sure. and, and relearning and reaffirming uh, all of the things that I 
assumed that I knew about Kawar and hopefully the the listeners will be able to take something out of it even if it's just a a curiosity to find out more that's that's I mean that's where most great ideas start as a curiosity so um yeah you know it's just it's fantastic uh, you know uh, maybe a little cat that I want to let out of the bag is that you know I, I'm always discovering uh areas of the Kawa model that are just developing and evolving and I was really, really happy to learn that uh, uh, Dr. Hadil, um, uh, um, I'm t- think, thinking about uh, what I've heard from Saudi Arabia and okay. from the Arabic world, uh, uh, in that um, uh, Dr. Hadil Bakshish has um, translated, has, has published, is, getting, is on the, the cusp of now releasing the publication of the Kawa model in the Arabic language. Oh, wow. That's cool. Uh, so that should be able to reach, um, another kind of new, uh, sector of the world. Yeah. Um, that can, uh, appreciate occupational therapy in a culturally relevant way. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, thank you. So like, I can't thank you enough for your time and you've been a, a massive influence on me professionally for years you like introduced me to things like social constructionism and recommended textbooks and books and all sorts of stuff for me to read and yeah you've had a massive influence on me clinically and i'm I'm glad that i could finally wrangle you in and and uh put you on the podcast for <laughs> to, to share your your brain with everyone else well yeah um brain i don't know but but certainly uh <laughs> Uh, responses to the and I and I'm really grateful for the the questions that have been brought forward from yeah uh, yeah some of your your um, followers and um, uh, I think that hopefully is again I'll repeat it's it's a start yeah. and that uh, it will be an ongoing um, conversation. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.